this morning, as we begin, I'd like to read these words from the prophet Isaiah. Thus says the Lord God, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and its offspring, who gives breath to the people on it, and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you up by my hand and watch over you. And I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon, and those who dwell in darkness from prison. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. Behold, the former things have come to pass. Now I declare new things. Before they spring forth, I pray, proclaim them to you. Our Father, we know that throughout the ages, your spirit has been at work from the very day that you created Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. To this day, you have never ceased to work in the hearts of those that you have created. We're so grateful, Lord, that we live in these times in which your word is proclaimed on a wider scale than ever before. We're so thankful, Lord, that you have created us to be a light to the nations. And this is our desire, that at least in the little world where we live, we will truly be a light and that through us, Christ, who is the one who delivers, who is the light, who is the one who frees the souls from prison, that we will be channels of that blessing in this community and through our prayers for our missionary friends around the world. Father, I pray that you will keep us focused on what your call is on our own lives, that we will not be uh, scattered in our thoughts and in our efforts by the pressures of this world, that we will keep a proper perspective Lord, on what is important in this life. Lord, as we study this morning the history of the work that you did in preparing your people for the coming of Messiah, Lord, I pray for your guidance and wisdom. And as your word is proclaimed throughout this property today, we ask for your anointing. We ask that thousands, even hundreds of thousands, be won into your kingdom around the world this day. And the kingdom of darkness will be driven back. And we'll thank you for it in Christ's great name. Amen. In Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 to 5, we read these words, and, and we read part of them last week. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. It's a very important passage. Fullness of time helps us to understand that God is at work throughout the course of history, whether it's easy to see his hand or not. The process of bringing about the fullness of time might appear to be simply the unfolding of history by the whim of man or the machinations of emperors and empires. You know, if, if we were to study modern European history, I, I teach a course at Simpson called Modern European History. And we look at the last 130 years or so of European history from about the time of the Franco-Prussian War to the present. And, and if you just do this from a purely secular point of view, there's no way that you're going to say, oh, I see God did this, God did that, God did something else, you know. But, but we as believers have to come to faith to know that whatever it appears to be on the surface, God is working, you know. 
was God behind, for example, the, the creation of the European coal and steel community, which eventually became the common market, which has become the European Union? Now with a, with a big parliament in Strasbourg, you know, and, and uh, a president of the European Union, is, is God behind that? Well, yeah, certainly he is. And whatever man thinks he's doing, you read in the Proverbs, you read it quite often, where it says, in effect, that man plans, but God overrules. And uh, God brings about his purpose, no matter what it is that kings and, and parliamentarians and prime ministers choose to do. And so, in the period from 300 B.C. to 142 B.C., the land of promise was under domination first by the Greeks of the Ptolemaic branch and then by the Seleucid branch of the Greeks. And we, we noted this last time. But here in, in the yellow, you have the portion of Alexander's empire that was taken over by the Seleucid Greeks, and in pink, the portion that was taken over by the Ptolemaic Greeks. And I pointed out to you before that the, the Ptolemaic Greeks were the final dynasties of pharaohs in Egypt. When the last of the Ptolemaic Greeks died, her name was Cleopatra, when she died, that was the end of Pharaonic Egypt. Egypt became a part of the Roman Empire, it was ruled by the Romans, and pharaohs never ever returned to Egypt again in history. In terms of this area, it would be slowly chewed away as various parts would rebel until eventually you have just pretty much this area right in here, greater Syria. It was about all that there was in the end in the first century before Rome took that over. So Palestine right in here, you see Tyre, Tyre is just to the north and a little bit west of most of Palestine, which is, which is right in here first under the Ptolemies and then under the Seleucids. After 142 BC, for a period of about 80 years, Israel was ruled by a dynasty of Jewish rulers known as the Maccabeans or the Hasmoneans. Hasmonean was the family name. Maccabean is sort of the title uh, that was attached to the dynasty. In 63 BC, and we talked about this last time, the eastward marching power of Rome penetrated this part of the world. You can almost view Rome as a malignancy in the Mediterranean world. A malignancy that started, you, Italy's not even on this map, but it, which started in the area right around Rome, but continued to spread until all of, Greece, uh, all of Italy was under Roman authority, and then Rome spread eastward and conquered the Greek world, and, and then they will penetrate the world we're talking about. And, at the same time, they will also begin to go northwest uh, too, penetrating Gaul, or what we today know as France. So during the 400 silent years, which I've been talking about over the last couple of Sundays, what's called the intertestamental period, the Holy Land was first of all dominated by the Persians, and then by the Greeks of Alexandria, then by the Greeks of Antioch. Alexandria was the capital of Ptolemaic kingdom, and Antioch up here was the capital of the Seleucid. Seleucid Kingdom, and then after 80 year, years of self-rule, Rome arrives on the scene. And so we have to understand the importance of both of these factors in terms of Greeks and Romans in playing a role in the fullness of time. Because when Jesus is born into the Holy Land, uh, it has been Hellenized for generations and even for centuries. And so you have a Greek background there. And that's one of the reasons why the New Testament was written in Greek. 
and then the world of, of the Eastern Mediterranean was, was a part of this great empire called the Roman Empire, which ruled all the way from the Wall of Hadrian, which separated England from Scotland, all the way over to the Mesopotamian Valley, including Palestine. This is all part of that final preparation for the fullness of times. So it didn't happen by accident. As I mentioned to you before, God didn't just put history out there, spread it out on the wall, and close his eyes and throw a dart and say, wherever it lands, that's where I'm going to send my son. No, he prepared history for that moment. And then ever since that time, we've been in what we call the church age, as God has been preparing his people for the return, the second advent, which I think most of us are hoping will be sooner rather than later as we look at the way things are going around the world. So last week, we arrived at the point where I was uh, beginning to uh, just briefly describe to you the six important Jewish sects, S-E-C-T-S. -E I don't know why we have to have words that sound so much alike. I always have to clarify that when I'm teaching at the college as well because, you know, that, that had developed mostly in the intertestamental times and then had their impact during the time of Jesus' life and, and the early church age. And last time I mentioned to you that the uh, earliest group appears to be what was known as the Hasidim, the word which means the pious ones. And they, they came into existence somewhere around 300 BC, it appears. And they were interested in religious reform because if you read the history of the Old Testament, you find that Israel starts passionately living for God and then they kind of cool off and then they go into apostasy and then God brings another catastrophe and they warm up again. And so, so during the intertestamental period after the temple had been rebuilt under Zerubbabel and the walls had been rebuilt around Jerusalem, uh, there would be a time again of cooling off of fervor. And so the Hasidim, the pious ones, sought to bring about true Jewish religion or focus on the true faith. And they were major supporters of the, of the Maccabees, the, the Jewish dynasty of uh, leaders that developed in the Holy Land. And I mentioned to you last time that they vigorously opposed this Hellenization, which is the word for Greekifying. To make Greek is to Hellenize. And that's what Alexander the Great, when he conquered this Persian Empire sought to do was to spread the culture of, of the Greeks as far as he could spread it. If he could have spread it around the world, he would have because he felt the Greek culture as he had learned it at the feet of Aristotle was the best culture in the world. And uh, so, so that did happen. And so we can see because Daniel, of course, prophesies of the coming of this man, even though he's not named per se, he's portrayed for us in the eighth chapter of Daniel. The, the coming of the he-goat that, that builds this empire, that this is all part of God's plan, laying the Greek foundation. Because when you think about it for a minute, if Palestine had remained outside of any empire and, and outside of, of a broader culture, how, how would the message have gotten out? How would the message, you know, if it was all, it was all in Hebrew and the Hebrews were just a few little people over in the corner of the Mediterranean, how would that message have gotten out? But, but since you have the whole New Testament world thoroughly permeated with Greek language and culture, it was quick and easy because Paul didn't have to go to the Wycliffe School of Bible Translators and, and learn a language to go out and preach the gospel. He could preach in Greek wherever he went because someone knew Greek wherever he went in 
And of course, he most of the time he was in the Greek world. I mean, he was in Greece or Asia Minor, which was the Greek world, and so he could just preach the gospel. Didn't have to have a translator or any other such thing. And so it's, this, this is all part of what God did. And of course, by, by creating the Roman Empire, and I'm getting way ahead of my story, but that's okay, creating the Roman Empire, he created a time of peace. Jesus was born in an era in the history of the Mediterranean, which is called the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, where ro power of Rome in, in Boston enforced peace throughout this part of the world, which had never known that kind of peace before. And so it would be easy for Paul to travel to Rome or, or wherever all he went, or Barnabas or the rest of them, because you could hop on a ship and you didn't have to worry. I mean, yeah, there were still pirates around, but every once in a while there would be an expedition to crush the pirates. And, there still were bad guys around because Jesus tells the story about the man going down to Jericho and he, he gets jumped on and beat up by a bunch of hoodlums. So you always have criminals on, on that basis. But in terms of major powers that would interfere and, and halt, there weren't any. God did this, you see. Even though it was the work of man, it still behind the scenes was the work of God. The Hasidim, who tried to keep the Jews on the straight and narrow path eventually evolved, a group of them anyway, the, main, the mainstream of them eventually evolved in the Pharisee sect. So let me just say something about the Pharisees. I think this is the point at which I left off last week. The Pharisees become identifiable as a specific separate sect uh, sometime in the first century before Christ, possibly a little earlier, but at least by the first century before Christ, both as a religious party and as a political party. And they tended to more liberally interpret the Word of God, the Torah in particular, the, the law. And they were much more careful, however, to abide by the oral tradition, which would later be written down in a work called the Mishnah. That was more important to them, or at least it seemed to become more important to them, than did the Torah. The Mishnah is a collection of traditional rabbinical interpretation of the Torah, the law, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And so what happened is, you remember we talked about that in the Babylonian period of time, the synagogue appears to have come into existence at that time. And the synagogue was created to provide a platform for, the, for prayer and for the study of what is called the Tanakh, T-A-N-A-K, which is kind of an acronym for the Torah, or the law, the Navim, which are the prophets, and the Kethuvim, which are the writings. And those are the three branches of the Old Testament, the, the law, the prophet, the writing, the, the T, the N, and the K and you stick the vowels in between, uh, and you have the Tanakh. Uh, the Tanakh is, is, is basically the word you can use for the Hebrew Old Testament. I mean, for the Hebrew Scripture, which we call the Old Testament. The Jews don't call it the Old Testament. It's the Scripture. It's the Word of God. But we call it that. The word Mishnah means to repeat. And so what, what happened as the synagogues developed, they had to develop a group of teachers to teach the law in, in the, the Word of God in the synagogue, and these became known as teachers, <laughs> rabbis. Rabbi means teacher. 
And so that was their job was to do this. Well, because times were changing, they had to interpret the Tanakh into their times. And so they began to give certain explanations for the meaning of the law, the prophets, and the writings, and to apply them to their day. And these became the oral traditions of the rabbis, which would later be written down as the Mishnah. So the Mishnah is the rabbi's interpretation of the Tanakh and application to the needs of the time. The Pharisees elevated that oral tradition, what would later become the written Mishnah, to equivalency with the written scripture. And they acted as if it were actually superior to the scripture. This is important to remember because it gives us background and understanding for many of the things which transpired in the ministry of Jesus. Jesus was hard on the Pharisees. We know that. Jesus was harder, it seems, on the Pharisees than he was, was on the tax collectors and the prostitutes, and for good reason. Let me read to you uh, from the seventh chapter of Mark. Mark chapter 7, beginning at verse 5. The Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? And he said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts, precepts of men, neglecting the commandment you hold to the tradition of men. He was also saying to them, you are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. So Jesus was talking about the oral tradition, what later becomes the Mishnah. They are putting it above the Tanakh, the scripture. And Jesus is saying, this is the word of God. This is the tradition of men. The rabbis interpreted the scripture and applied it to their particular time, but that wasn't inspired of God. That was inspired of man. The Tanakh is the inspired word of God. And so for you to put the Mishnah above the Tanakh is, in, as, as Jesus said here, to neglect the command of God and to hold the tradi tradition of men. Now this is carried over into the Christian world. Because today you will discover that two main branches of Christianity have a tendency to put tradition on par with Scripture and act as if it was superior to, to Scripture. There was a council held in Trent in the middle of the 16th century. Trent is a beautiful town way up in northern Italy, right at the base of the Alps. It's a wonderful location. But there, over a period of nearly two decades, the council of the church met and they decided to... to, to to keep everything the way it was as far as what the church believed in the face of the Reformation. And that is to put the traditions really, I mean, they don't claim that they're higher than the church, but they claim they're equally inspired with Scripture and they treat them as if they're superior to Scripture. And, and this is basically true. This is basically what happens uh, within both the Roman Catholic and the Greek or the, the Orthodox Church in the broadest sense of the word. And, and so, I, you know, I think Jesus is speaking to them here through his words to the Pharisees. The Pharisees had a wide following among the people. 
They had a wide following because they were very sure of themselves. And they were viewed as true blue Jews. Flag-waving Jews, you know. Patriots who were opposed to oppressive Gentile government. Well, a third sect that would evolve is the sect we know from the Scripture as the Sadducees. This sect developed about 200 B.C. and was primarily interested in seeking political power by controlling the high priesthood of Judaism as well as the government to whatever degree they could do that. And they favored a very narrow interpretation of the Torah, the law. And they rejected the Mishnah as totally meaningless. Now these, these traditions, these, these uh, oral interpretations by the rabbis, they don't mean wit as far as the Sadducees were concerned. Sadducees, you'll discover, uh, were mostly Hellenized and primarily concerned about the affairs of this world. By and large, they, they rejected the supernatural, which you might think is really strange for a, a religious sect. Well, they weren't really so much a religious sect as they were a political group. At the very best, they were deistic in a sense that they believe that God is, is transcendent and, and He's way out there and, and, you know, there's no direct communication between Him and people. They viewed God as very distant and unconcerned with the affairs of man. And of course, Paul, what sect did Paul come from? Pharisees, Pharisees okay. He was a Pharisee. Yes, a Pharisee of Pharisees. Let me read to you from this passage that you're certainly not unfamiliar with in the 23rd chapter of Acts. Paul is taken before the, the council and the high priest is there and is commanding those to you know, smack Paul around. And uh, in the 23rd chapter of Acts, reading at verse 6, Paul standing be before this council, this Sanhedrin, but perceiving that one group were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, Paul began crying out in the council, the, the Sanhedrin, Brethren, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees, and I am on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. And he said this, as he said this, there occurred a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Pharisees say there is no resurrection, nor an angel, nor a spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. And there was great, occurred a great uproar. And some of the scribes of the Pharisaic party stood up and began to argue heatedly, saying, we find nothing wrong with this man. Suppose a spirit or an angel has spoken to him. <laughs> and the Sadducees, of course, couldn't have disagreed more. So these two were rarely on the same page. Every once in a while you discover they're sort of on the same page simply because Jesus was their object of, of anger and, and the focus of their hatred. The Pharisees and the Sadducees quarreled with each other. The Pharisees, as holier than thou as they were, did believe in the spiritual things of the teaching of the Word and did pray and tithe and all those kinds of things, even to, to a fault. The Sadducees had little time for any of that because they were only concerned with, really, with political matters. And they were quick to accommodate themselves to whomever was in power. If the 
person in power was a Jew, fine. If the person in power was a Roman, that was okay too. They accommodated themselves to whoever. They, they were, they were uh, chameleons, you know. And that's why there was so much trouble between them and the Pharisees, who were the true blue Jews, you know. A fourth sect, much smaller than the others, which developed was originally comprised of the most extreme of the Hasidim who opposed alien rule. These are known as the Zealots. Now we use, word, we use the word Zealot, of course, to, to mean somebody who's pretty extreme in, in his position, whatever it might be. And these persons stood fanatically for the Jewish faith and violently opposed alien rule. They were strongly opposed against the Greek influence. They were strongly opposed against the government of Antioch. They were equally strongly opposed against or opposed to the government of Rome. And the most extreme amongst the zealots took on the occupation of being assassins. And their job was to go around and to find anybody who accommodated themselves to the government of Rome or, or who cooperated with the government of Rome, collaborated in any way, and <coughs> terminate them. Just like today, if you're a Palestinian, and, and you start talking about peace, and say, let's, let's have peace with the Jews, and let's accommodate your, your, uh, ourselves to the Jews, those guys disappear. That's why there doesn't seem to be any middle ground between the Jews and the Arabs, because anybody tries to, be, to, to conform on the, on, the, on the Palestinian side anyway, they get murdered. They disappear. And, and so the zealots were trying to, to keep up the schism between Rome and the Jews and never let the Jews accommodate to Roman rule, acculturize. They are the ones who triggered the great war that began in the year 66, in which the Jews rose up against the Romans. For the first part of the war, the Jews kind of had an advantage because the Romans were taken by surprise, but then the Romans brought in heavy military force. This war lasted from 66 to 73. Jesus had prophesied it. And Jesus had said when the disciples said, Ah, oh, look at this great temple, O Lord, isn't it wonderful? And he said, One day is coming, one stone will not be standing upon another. And that occurred in the middle of this war, which was zealot-inspired, in which Titus, the uh, commander of the Roman forces, totally leveled the temple of Herod. That's why today, when you go to the temple site in Jerusalem, with exception of two Islamic monuments, there's, there's nothing there of the former Jewish temple, any version of it, nothing there. And the structures that are there uh, were built much later in time. You know, the Dome of the Rock wasn't built until the 8th century, 7th, 7th, 8th, no, 8th century. And so this particular war led to that great disaster. And then, of course, to the heroic stand of these zealots on the top of Masada. Those of you who have, who have read the account that Josephus gives us of the final stand on Masada, you know that uh, nearly a thousand Jews stood against the Romans for, for a long period of time until it was inevitable that the Romans were going to capture Masada, and then they committed mass suicide to not be taken by the Romans. These were zealots. Jesus had a disciple who was called Simon the Zealot. A fifth sect of that time were the Herodians. They were a political party that supported the Herodian dynasty. They were particularly interested in the Herodian dynasty. 
religiously and uh, politically, they pretty much were Pharis, uh, Sadducees. But they, they were focused on the Herodian dynasty, the dynasty that was founded by Herod the Great and that was carried on by his sons and further descendants. They were Hellenized Jews who would probably have mostly walked in lockstep with the, with the Sadducees and were probably mostly politically Sadducees. Their goals appear to have been purely political. They're mentioned in Matthew and Mark, both those Gospels mention the Herodians as cooperating with the Pharisees, of all people, in attempting to trap Jesus because, not because, you know, to, to the Herodians and the Sadducees, that, that Jesus proclaimed certain spiritual things didn't really matter to them. It was the fact that he was a threat to the political establishment that they wanted him eliminated. To the Pharisees, he was, of course, transgressing their interpretation of Scripture, their misunderstanding of Scripture. And so Jesus is about the only one who could bring the two together, uh, the Sadducee side of things and the Pharisee side of things, in opposition to him, himself. Lastly, we have uh, a very small group called the Essenes, E-S-S-E-N-E-S. -E -E this is a group made up of just a few thousand men, ascetics, ascetics, who apparently also descended from the Hasidim. So the Hasidim, a kind of a collective term for the pious ones that, that evolved into several other or became known, various phases of them became known as other sects during the time of, uh, of Jesus. Uh, the, the Essenes rejected the temple worship that was going on at that time as polluted. Now we know the temple had been polluted specifically by Antiochus IV Epiphanes back in the second century before Christ, but it had been cleansed. And we talked about Hanukkah and the, the cleansing which occurred back in the 160s BC of the temple. But to the Essenes, what was going on there still was polluted. You know, it wasn't the true worship that it, as it had been back in the days of David and Solomon. They were more strict in both religious and social life than were the Pharisees. So it's kind of interesting, isn't it? Uh, just as in our society we have, we have the extreme right and the extreme left, and, and so you have here. You know, you have your Sadducees and your Herodians way out over this way, and, and then you have your Zealots and your Essenes out over that way, and I mean, which is right and which is left, I'll leave that up to you to determine. Do you know why we call it right and left? No, sides, S-I-D-E-S, -E I think is what he said, of the Congress building. Yeah, but which Congress building? Well, yeah, we inherited it though. Yeah. We, we inherited it from the, from the French in the French Revolution when they set up their legislative assembly, which would declare the French Republic and get rid of the Bourbon dynasty. The people who were extremely uh, royalists sat on the right, and those who were extremely libertine sat on the left. And they physically sat that way as you look from the podium out over the delegates there. So the political parties gathered according to, you know, the centrists were here, and. The royalists were here, and, and the Jacobins, the, uh, the people who wanted a poor man's republic, so to speak, 
sat over on the left. And so we've kept that ever since that time, even though that parliament only sat for a year or two. And yet that terminology has continued all the way till this particular day. Is that an accident? You know, I, I don't think any of these things are accidents of history. The Essenes generally were celibate. They tended to live communally. And some believe that John the Baptist may have associated with them. Some even call John the Baptist an Essene. Uh, the scripture doesn't uh, indicate that that is necessarily so. But, but at least he was an ascetic, a celibate ascetic, as they were. But the uh, Essenes are most famous for their uh, Qumran community. Here, the head of the Dead Sea, a place called Qumran where you can go there and you can see the site of, of the Qumran uh, community. It's, it's an archaeological excavation that you can see. And they, they lived there, and, and of course that was in a place that would have been hardly out of the way. But what really became, made them well known to us today was the fact in the late 1940s they discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls there, which had been written by this Essene community at Qumran and put in clay jars up in little caves. And, the, the beauty of that was, now again, the Essenes. Did God call the Essenes into existence? Did God give them the desire to copy out the scripture? And of course, a lot of other things they copied too, their own ideas and laws and so forth. Did, did God have anything to do with them putting them in clay jars and putting them in a cave that wouldn't be discovered for 2,000 years? So that in the end times, you could pull out the whole scroll of Isaiah and discover that the Isaiah of the, of the Essenes of the first century before Christ is virtually word for word the Isaiah as we would have it today translated into English, which would tear down the, the, the teachings of some that scripture we have today is totally polluted and corrupted and we don't really know what the Bible originally said because it's been so mistranslated and over the years when here you've got basically the identical thing over 2,000 years. This, what this does is support, in my mind at least, what is called the su superintendency of God's Spirit. God has seen to it that His Word has remained pure down through the centuries. So that when you read it, the truth you read there is the Word of God to you as it was to whomever it was written to in the beginning of, of the writing. So the Essenes played a very, very important role. The sect would disappear in, in Roman times as basically most of these uh, would as identifiable sex. Also during the intertestamental period, several <laughs> books were written or compiled that have collectively become known as the Apocrypha, which means hidden writings. Let me read you the words of Old Testament scholar R.K. Harrison uh, concerning, giving insight concerning the Apocrypha. He says, the word Apocrypha was originally used as a literary term with regard to books which were unsuitable for public reading because of their esoteric content, meaning mystical, obscure, secret content. It was felt that the secret doctrines which they enshrined would lose their authority if they were profaned by the gaze of the common people, an attitude particularly in evidence among the Greek Gnostics. Now, this has carried over into the Christian church as well. And you get into the medieval world, and if you're a common man, you are never allowed to lay your eyes on Holy Scripture. Because the church believed, and when I say the church, I'm talking about the Roman Catholic Church, which was the dominant church of Europe in the Middle Ages. 
they believe that the common ordinary man could not read scripture and get the truth. That's that he'd read the scripture and come up with all kinds of perverted views and and, and that's where Protestantism, you see, got its root. Luther perverted scripture, Calvin perverted scripture, and, and that's why they broke away from the true church. So it's a, it's a belief that the word of God was not written for the common people, but for only those in the know, only the in-group, the Gnostic group. If that were true, then we're wasting our time studying scripture on our own. Devotions, you know, would be useless. If, if all we were getting was perverted truth. You know, cannot the God of the universe speak to the common man? After all, what are we all but common men, really? And so this whole idea has perverted the history of the church. And we can be so grateful that one of the proclamations of Martin Luther was sola scriptura, by the word of God alone. We come to salvation. We come to know God. The traditions of the church not, notwithstanding. Fifteen of these writings labeled Apocrypha were included in the Septuagint, but were rejected by the Hebrew canon when it was put together by a council that was held over here, uh, right here. You see this word, Jamnia. It's a town over on the coast directly west of Emmaus. Here's Jerusalem. Over here on the coast, a place called Jamnia, around the year 100, a council of rabbis met together and they, they uh, gave canonical, you know, put together the canon of, of the Hebrew scripture and they did not include these books. They did not include these books. But, because the Catholic Church, or the Church, it wasn't, quote, Catholic per se yet, but because the Church, under Jerome, translated the Septuagint version into the Latin, even though Jerome himself didn't want to include the Apocrypha, the head of the church at Rome said, include it, so he did. And so you have the Septuagint being the root of the Old Testament according to the Vulgate version. And then when the, when the Orthodox Church developed the Orthodox view of Scripture, they just simply took the Septuagint because it was Greek and they're Greek. And, and so the Apocrypha became part of the canon of the actual Word of God, in their view, along with the other books of the, of the Old Testament. Protestants, like the Jews, most Protestants anyway, not all, have rejected the Apocrypha and declared it to not be a part of the canon of Scripture. Canon means rule the authoritative collection of the Word of God. Now, some of the books, like 1 Maccabees, are good to read. They're interesting. They, 1 Maccabees has a lot of historical data, and I have read from it to, to you here. But the Apocrypha has been rejected as Scripture by both the Protestants and the Jews because the authorship of most Apocryphal books is unknown, at, uncertain at best, and unknown for the most part. And because there is clear disharmony between the pattern and teachings in the apocryphal books and those which are part of canonical scripture. There are other writings as well. We don't have time today to go into it, but there are other writings besides the apocrypha which were produced in much greater numbers, which generally have never been considered a part of the canon, but uh, which are floating around too. Every once in a while, I don't know if you see these ads, Every once in a while there's an ad for 
the lost scriptures. Oh, you know, send in and you'll get a copy of the lost scriptures and didn't get included in the Bible. And you, of course, you will learn much more truth if you buy these. And of course, you know, that's, that's nothing but the Gnostic literature, you know, a bunch of really nutty stuff that was written and was never a part of scripture at any time and never intended to be by, by God to be part of his word. So never buy that stuff. It's a waste of your money unless you just want to, you know, read some interesting stuff. Uh, but it has no other value. Well, we will we'll pick it up next week there.